Hey, it's Anita, and this is Bitcoin and Co. Hello girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 74 of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. Today's guest is Dale Barron. He is a married father of two living in Germany. Since 2017, Bitcoin is the only money Dale is using. He does not own or hold any fiat currency like euros or US dollars. We will talk about his motivation for doing so how his wife and children deal with it, why he is using different identities, what LSD has to do with all of it, and if he is paid in Bitcoin and much, much more. Before that, I'm playing you a message that was sent in by Tamtin. Hi, Anita. I'd like to ask about uh, this Bitcoin core. I want to understand the difference between Bitcoin, local Bitcoin and Bitcoin vault. I'm trying to figure out in which way I can get money. So I like to invest because when I'm trading, is just killing me. I will dedicate a special episode to this topic because I get these questions very often. Many people are confused by the thousands of altcoins or scam coins that use Bitcoin in their names. In the next couple of days, I will release an episode with my answer and an explanation how to invest in Bitcoin without getting wrecked from trading. If you want to get notified about this episode, please go to your podcast player and look for the subscribe button and hit it now. Next time, Bitcoin and Co. will show up in your podcast player automatically. And please do me a favor, write a recommendation on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot to spread the news about the show. Thanks. If you have a question or a story to tell, you can send me an email to hello at anitaposch.com or you can visit anita.link forward slash 74, where you will find an audio recorder to send me a message. Also, the show notes of my conversation with Dale Bevan are on this page. And now, a word from my sponsors. Local Bitcoins is one of the most trusted and the largest peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trading platforms in the world. On Local Bitcoins, you can buy and sell your Bitcoin in an easy, fast and secure way, always protected by escrow. Unlike stock-like exchanges, Local Bitcoins allows you to trade with people like you and you can choose any currency you prefer and find a safe payment method to complete your trade. Local Bitcoins also offers a web wallet, so you can trade and deposit and send out your Bitcoin all in one account. Go to www.localbitcoins.com to buy and sell Bitcoin. Shift Crypto and their Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. I've known the team behind the Bitbox O2 for some time now, and I feel we share the same values. We believe in financial independence, and that means holding your own keys. We care about making it easy for everyone to keep their Bitcoin safe. The Bitbox O2 is a Swiss-made hardware wallet. It makes it simple to store and use your coins. I especially like that they have a Bitcoin-only edition too, and I can use it directly with my phone. Check out the Bitbox O2 at shiftcrypto.ch. That's S-H-I-F-T-C-R-Y-P-T-O. You'll get a 10% discount with the code ANITA in the checkout. Not your keys, not your coins, is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet, which is what most crypto experts use. For those who have difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets, there is the card wallet. The Card Wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed and it leaves no traces on the blockchain. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker founded in 2014. Order your Card Wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. And finally, 
a shout out to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find other Bitcoin-related podcasts like Proof of Love, Bitcoin Audible, POV Crypto and more. Hello, Dale. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. A few days ago, you posted on Twitter that your parents-in-law gave you some cash as a birthday present and that you didn't know what to do with it now because in the last three years, you made it a habit to use and hold only Bitcoin. So no euros, no US dollars, no other fiat currency. And I thought to myself, he's the man. <laughs> I want to have him on the show. And here you are. Please introduce yourself. Absolutely. Happy to. So yeah, all of that's correct. I hold and use only Bitcoin and we'll talk about that through the interview. But as a brief introduction, I'm a New Zealander originally. I've traveled all over the world. I've actually been on every continent on earth, which uh, is something I'm quite proud of, to be honest. I've lived in five different countries. I speak a few different languages. These days I live in Germany. I'm a father of two, so married, two children. I'm a polymath, so uh, that means I'm interested in basically everything and I find connections between things. So I could you know, be interested for a couple of years in something like neuroscience or something like economics or something like uh, quantum physics and actually go in and study some of those things and then kind of find connections between them and patterns. So that's something I really enjoy doing. And that's also how I kind of first stumbled into the Bitcoin world. Yeah, I can imagine that. And also the Bitcoin world in, in, in itself is something that's very diverse. I mean, there are many paths you can go. Definitely, yeah. And co connections to make, yeah. Yes. So, and and on your Twitter bio, I read that you are also a neuro. Uh, that's a difficult word yeah. for a German speaker. Neurophysicist. Thank you very much. Yeah. And you wrote a book about LSD as a tool for self-discovery. What's the story behind this book, and why did you write it? Yeah. So to be first of all clear, I'm not a qualified doctor. So I'm not Dr. Dale Buen. When I say I'm a neuropharmacologist, basically I've passed my MCAT. That's the medical college admission test. I took some classes. I've written papers on neuropharmacology, but I don't have a degree and I've never intended to work in that field. So it's more of a an interest that I have studied rather than actually being a field of work. I wrote the book uh, because I believe that LSD is something that's really very often misunderstood. It's an extremely powerful mind-altering substance, but it's not just something that people take for getting high or having fun. You know, uh, like it's not really a party drug. People can use it that way and do use it that way. And to be honest, I see nothing wrong with people at using it that way as long as they're being careful and taking precautions. But I also see that LSD offers a lot of additional benefits. It can really help people with different things, including self-discovery, which is the main theme of my book. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And do you know, are there already countries or medical schools or psychologists or psychotherapeuten in German who use this kind? I, I hear a lot of Tim Ferriss podcasts and he's often also talking about drugs uh, for psychotherapy and things like that. Absolutely. So there are some groups like MAPS, that's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They run formal studies in lots of areas by working with different hospitals and different uh, research organizations. There hasn't been so much specifically done on LSD, although, of course, uh, there have been some things. But there's a lot of related substances such as psilocybin, which is the active ingredient of magic mushrooms. And that's been uh, studied quite a lot more in the last sort of five to 10 years. There's also been a lot of research into MDMA, which is um, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, better known as ecstasy. And that's uh, currently being trialed in some locations to help with post-traumatic stress disorder. So people who have been in a war and are having real trouble reintegrating into society can benefit from MDMA. I actually see a lot of potential there for LSD as well, but there hasn't been as much research into that yet. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what can one learn while doing, I guess it's a guided trip in a way. I mean, what, what can I learn when I take it? Really, there's a lot of different potential 
possibilities there. But I find the biggest thing is being able to look at problems, whether they be personal problems or external problems, in a different way. So it's almost like you're looking at things with new eyes. And I think that's one of the reasons people enjoy taking it. You're having a childlike wonder about the world again, being able to look at a tree and just be amazed by a tree. But beyond that, you can look at your own problems and see them in new ways and maybe come up with new solutions, work around a problem in different ways. So in my relatively long career, I spent quite a long time as a software developer. And there was one instance where while um, under the influence of LSD, I completely redesigned the architecture of a very large complex system because I was able to visualize it in new ways. And I kind of saw where some of the problems were in the system that I was building. <laughs> okay, that's great. Do you think Satoshi Nakamoto was on LSD when he invented Bitcoin? <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out, but I would also say there's no reason to think he was. So well, yeah. I'd love to think, you know, if I heard he was, it wouldn't surprise me and I would think it was great. But yeah, I also don't think there's any good reason to say he was. Was this book and the work with LSD as a drug and they are, it's a big taboo. Was this also a reason for you to go anonymous or pseudonymous on the internet? Not entirely, but it is kind of a part of it. The main reason that um, I use pseudonyms on the internet um, is that I actually consider identity to be kind of a fluid concept. If you think about it, when you were a child, you were a different person than you are now. You had different thoughts, different ways of thinking, um, and that changes throughout your life. So really, you do have different identities throughout your life. I just take that to another kind of stage where I say, okay, I have different identities at the same time in my life. And it is relatively common for me. It's become almost standard for me. Um, so I could be at a Bitcoin conference and somebody will yell out, hey, Dale, and I will react to that because as far as I'm concerned, even though my passport doesn't say Dale Buen, that's who I am. And are you Dale Buen in the Bitcoin space and in another space you are somebody else? Yes, I have multiple different identities that I use. I actually created the Dale Buen identity primarily for the book that I wrote, but it just kind of happened that because the book mentions Bitcoin in one very small part when it's talking about Silk Road as a place that people potentially can get LSD, so that also dates the book somewhat around the times of Silk Road. <laughs> and um, yeah, I got a lot of people questioning me about Bitcoin just because of that one little mention in the book. And from there, I kind of started talking about Bitcoin a lot more using my Dale Buen identity. And uh, now it's kind of become almost the main thing that I talk about with this identity. <laughs> and and how is the feeling? I mean, you you protect your real identity in a way, or is it something else for you? Is it like just a representation of who you are in this space? Yeah, I would actually say that's closer to it. I, In a way, it is partly, of course, to protect um, other identities, but I really don't think of any of them as real identity or fake identity. They're just different identities. So Dale Buen may not be the name on my passport, but it's just as much me as that other name on my passport is. Please tell us your story about Bitcoin. How and when did you get to know about it and what led you down the so-called rabbit hole? Yep, absolutely. So it actually starts 2010. So that's very early in the Bitcoin world. I discovered Bitcoin on a mailing list. I honestly couldn't tell you which one. Um, it was probably one of the cypherpunk mailing lists, one of those cryptography related mailing lists, but I honestly don't know. I downloaded it. I played with it. I mined some Bitcoin. I, As far as I recall, I mined four blocks and that's usually my story, but I can't actually say that for sure because it was so long ago. And then I made what was probably the silliest mistake of my life. I said, this isn't as interesting as SETI at home. So I deleted it. I thought, why use my computing power to create these virtual coins? I've got 200 of them already. That's useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I can guarantee there are at least 200 Bitcoins that are non accessible anymore and are a donation to the world in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And how do you cope with that situation? I mean, you had 10 years now to, yeah. to think about it. I, I guess I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with it. You know, I can sort of always think back and say, wouldn't it be great to have that now? But realistically, I don't think I would have those 200 Bitcoin now. I would have done something else with them, lost them in some other way, 
or maybe just spent them in some way. I can say the next um, encounter I had with Bitcoin was around 2011 when I discovered Silk Road. As I was writing my book about LSD, as um, you know, I'm quite open about the fact that I use LSD, I enjoy it, I find it very helpful for myself. So I went on Silk Road to buy some, and of course, I needed Bitcoin to do that. So I bought Bitcoin on Mt. Gox, I transferred it to Silk Road, I bought LSD, and I don't remember exact amount, but I do remember buying 60 Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and spending about 53 of them having seven just sort of left over as change. So, you know, if I had two, if I had those original 200 Bitcoin, I would have spent them in exactly the same way. Just what happens. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And did you run into any troubles then when Silk Road was taken down? None at all. So I always used good operational security in general, didn't mail things directly to my own um, name and address. I would have uh, drop-off points where I could get things posted to. And unlike a lot of other substances, LSD, you know, comes on small square bits of cardboard in general. So it's very, very easy to post through the mail system. Yeah. So there were no, I had no issues with Silk Road being taken down. Clearly nobody saved my address anywhere. That's a good thing. And so in between that time from 2013 to now, when yep. did you decide to use Bitcoin instead of fiat currency? Mm -hmm. So as far as I uh, understand, you only use Bitcoin. Yes. So now I only use Bitcoin. So the next sort of step in my learning was around 2013. I noticed the value of Bitcoin going up. And finally, I thought, hold on, what have I been doing? I've been playing with this thing over the last couple of years. You know, I get some, I use it on Silk Road, whatever, but I, I never really understood it so well. So I finally started getting more deeply involved. I did contribute to Bitcoin Core a little bit in the early days as software developer. I don't so much anymore. And also that was under another name. So, you know, if you find a developer who contributed back then, that could have been me, but I won't say which one. Then I really sort of got into the whole idea of spend and replace. So I would, you know, spend my Bitcoin on something and then replace it from fiat. So if I had uh, you know, spent 50 euro worth of Bitcoin, I would buy another 50 euro um, back again. Um, so I would always have the same amount of Bitcoin. But in 2017, I kind of had an epiphany. I had just had this thought come into my head that people complain about spending Bitcoin because of the price appreciation. They think, okay, if the value is going to go up, why spend it now? Because uh, you know, the opportunity cost is that you're losing all of that future value. So, and I realized you actually have the exact same opportunity cost for holding fiat. If I hold 50 euro that I don't convert to Bitcoin, then the price appreciation of the Bitcoin that I could have bought is identical to having spent 50 euro worth of Bitcoin. It's the exact same thing, mathematically speaking. So it made All of a sudden, it made no sense for me to hold fiat currency anymore. And I just said to myself, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. Um, it was complicated <laughs> at first, but yeah, I stopped holding fiat currency and only held Bitcoin from that point forward. I'm in the spend and replace phase. <laughs> and I think I, I just have a little bit of euros in my banking account because sometimes, I mean, I think to myself, yeah, but I have to pay things in euros. And if I convert it first to Bitcoin and then back into euros, then that, that doesn't make sense because I have to pay transaction costs and maybe fees for the exchange. What would you recommend? Um, is it better to just use Bitcoin, although I might need euros? I, I think that's a matter of how easily you can get by on Bitcoin only, because um, to be honest, I wouldn't necessarily recommend at this stage to anyone to do the way that I'm doing it. I know that I am actually incurring additional costs that I wouldn't necessarily have to incur if I held fiat. But I have also kind of decided that what I'm doing is worth it for me and as a way that I can show other people it is possible. So I, yeah, I do occasionally incur mm -hmm. some costs that I wouldn't otherwise incur, but to me it's worth it and it just makes sense. You have a wife and two children. Do yeah. you have another banking account with Fiat or are you all living on Bitcoin? 
So we are all living on Bitcoin with the small exception that my children will occasionally get cash money from grandparents or something. Um, so my uh, son just um, had his first day of uh, school. So he's just transitioned from kindergarten to school and his grandparents gave him some fiat money for that. So he's got, I think, maybe 20 euro or something. But that's the only fiat in the house. We don't have, I do have a bank account, but it stays on zero. My wife doesn't have a bank account at all anymore because she doesn't work. So she figured, why keep a bank account and pay for it when there's no no money going in or out? Yeah, My bank account occasionally gets a little bit of fiat in it. For example, my book sales on Amazon. Um, Amazon have no method to pay me other than sending money into my bank account. So that's how Amazon pay me for book sales. And yeah, that gets immediately converted to Bitcoin when it comes in. And I think you are working as a software developer for a big company. Are you, uh, your wage is also in euros, or? I really need to update my Amazon profile. I actually no longer work as a software developer. I did until 2016, maybe 2017. From there, I transitioned more into management. And actually, I left that large company in 2018 to join a smaller Bitcoin-related um, company. Right now, I'm actually uh, in between jobs because I decided to leave my last company when they decided to start, in my opinion, essentially just scam scamming people. I don't really want to go into details too much, but uh, they decided to do some things which I consider very unethical. So I had to leave the company. Mm -hmm. So you're a Bitcoin purist in a way? Yes. So you only hold Bitcoin and you only use Bitcoin, no other altcoins and stuff? That's right. I um, In the very early days, I started to look at some of the others to try and see, well, okay, what is up with these things? Could they offer something of value? Could they be something interesting for me? But I kind of realized that from a technological point of view, if they're going to do anything interesting, it's something that Bitcoin probably can implement and will implement if it uh, can be. And from an economic point of view, it really doesn't make sense for there to be multiple currencies in the long term. Money is essentially a type of protocol. It's the way that we communicate value between people. And the communication of value acts in a lot of ways like a computer protocol or a network protocol. And if I think about other kinds of network protocols, they tend to always... Um, start off as lots of competing standards, lots of competing protocols, and then it narrows down to just one. So if you look at uh, computer networks in the early days, there was a lot of different competition to TCP IP. There were things like uh, Novell's IPX, SPX, and Apple had their own Apple Talk protocol. And there were all of these different standards. Now everything is TCP IP because it doesn't make sense to have competing standards. And to me, I see money as the very fundamental concept of money as being the same sort of thing value transfer between people it doesn't make sense to talk about different kinds of value when everything can be abstracted as one simple value and then you build stuff on top of that so for me i am what gets called a bitcoin maximalist but out of reasoned ideas not out of just some kind of loyalty where i say you know i hate everything else it's more i just don't see how we can have a world with more than one Mm -hmm. But on top of the base layer, like the protocol, the Bitcoin protocol, we are going to have, and we already have loads of other, like say, protocols like the liquid network and tokens and smart contracts and stuff. Uh, do you yes. do you look at these developments and are you going to use these kinds of things? How do you think about those? Definitely. So I actually think those kinds of approaches are the correct approach. Going back to the same analogy of TCP IP for network protocols, you build everything else on top. So if you need to transfer files, you create a file transfer protocol. If you need to transfer web pages, you create a hypertext transfer protocol. So you can build other things on top of a base layer, but building other things as competition beside it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think the LNP-BP project, the Lightning Network Protocol, Bitcoin Protocol project is exactly the right direction. And I think there's going to be a lot of amazing things built around that. I also think the LSAT, the authentication token um, approach is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I guess you're also using Lightning wallets and the Lightning Network for paying bills and stuff. Primarily, yes. I actually have... I would guess you could say I've got four different wallets other than ones that I'm testing or playing with or whatever. So I've got four real wallets. 
One is my sort of equivalent of having cash in my pocket, and that's my Lightning Wallet. I've convinced most of the smaller businesses where I live to accept Lightning payments from me. Um, so if I go to buy coffee at my local cafe or I buy um, some bread rolls for breakfast, you know, very typical Brötchen, Kalfen, German bread rolls, then uh, yeah, I'll, that will always be a Lightning payment. Aside from that, I have a on-chain wallet on my mobile phone, which is more for larger types of things so if there's something which doesn't really make sense across lightning but it's still small enough that it would be the value i store on my phone i'll use that i have a hardware wallet which uh, is i think of it more like a savings account and then i have another one which is 100 percent offline so i generated the seed offline the private key has never been on a active device of any kind the um uh, private key is uh, then split up and stored in multiple locations around the world. And I just have the public keys on uh, a computer where I can generate new addresses to send to. And I think of that as more sort of my really cold storage, long-term savings. Mm -hmm. In different places around the world, you have, have do you have safety uh, deposit boxes there? Or how do you do that? It's, it's a mix of different things. So for my cold storage, I don't really want to describe it in too much detail because of security <laughs> reasons. But let's say you know some of it is things like safety deposit boxes. Others are things like in the custody of people I can trust, knowing that those are just parts. So even if they take that part and you know they can't do mm. with it unless they get more parts. Mm -hmm. So you basically went around in the area where you live and suggested to the shops that they should take Bitcoin. I mean, how did you do that? Um, it's a slow and difficult process, but it's something I've actually gotten quite good at over the years. It's been three years I've been doing it now. So my usual way is I will just walk into a shop. If I haven't been there before, I'll ask if they take Bitcoin. Yeah, they will almost certainly say no. And then I'll say, oh, sorry, I can't buy anything here. And I'll start walking out. Most of the time, they will just let me walk out. But if you do that in enough places, then after a while, somebody will say, well, hold on, what is this Bitcoin thing? That gives me a chance to explain it to them. And from there, I can get them to accept it. It's it's a slow process. And it usually takes a few months of them saying, well, okay, maybe um, I'll accept it just from you first. I won't accept it from other people. Let's figure out what is this thing and then they you know a few conversations mm. but i also do a lot of phoning around so a good example would be my children of course you know occasionally need haircuts and a simple thing like finding a hairdresser i spent about three hours on the phone calling around different hairdressers and finally one of them said okay i don't know anything about bitcoin and we don't accept it officially but uh, you know one of our hairdressers here is interested in that um, Bitcoin stuff. Maybe you want to talk to them. So I have a deal with one of the people who works at this hairdresser and they will basically pay their company in cash and I will send them Bitcoin for um, haircuts. <laughs> mm, great. But uh, why do you do it? Because I mean, I could also go into shops and ask, but I don't do it because I think it's too, it's, I think it's exhausting always to tell people why they should use it and uh, get a lot of resistance, you know? It, it, it is exhausting. And it's why I'd also say I don't necessarily recommend other people do this. It's not, it, it's not a practical way to do things for most people. Um, it's harder than just using fiat. It's, uh, doesn't bring any particular strong benefits compared to, you know, having maybe your savings in Bitcoin, but also having some fiat that you use for daily things. I would say at this point, I do it mostly out of a way to show that it can be done and maybe encourage other people who would want to consider doing the same and also normalizing it a bit in the eyes of the people who I'm dealing with. So, It's not typical that a small bakery or a small hairdresser's shop or something even think about Bitcoin on a day-to-day -day basis. So this really does help spread awareness as well. It doesn't benefit me anywhere near as much as it benefits the people I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah, and, and other Bitcoin holders. <laughs> yeah. And so you're very long actually into Bitcoin. So you also experienced the hype cycles or let's say the bull and bear markets. How did that feel? Like for instance, in 2017, when suddenly your wealth grew, I don't know, 10 times? Yep. I, 
I do my best to kind of look at the long-term vision more than short-term changes in value. So yes, my wealth grew 10 times, but I didn't have a huge amount of wealth at the time. So you know, I, if you think about it in terms of hours worked, somebody who has one hour worked of their income um, stored in Bitcoin, if it increases 10 times, okay, now they've got 10 hours worth of income in Bitcoin. It's not a life-changing amount of money. So I also didn't have a life-changing amount of money in Bitcoin in 2017, because that's just when I started uh, deciding to say, okay, I'm going to store all of my wealth in Bitcoin. And yeah, I definitely came out quite well out of it. You know, I was able to have a nice holiday to Tokyo with my family. I bought a new computer, which was very nice, but it wasn't a huge life-changing kind of thing where all of a sudden I'm driving a Lamborghini and have a you know, beautiful house or something. <laughs> If you would want the Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, I actually also really wouldn't. It's not much of a family car. <laughs> exactly. Okay, great. So are you prepared? I mean, if, when the next bull run comes and Bitcoin might go from 10,000 to, I don't know, 50,000 in a few months, are you prepared for that? How do you stay sane? Yeah, I'm not sure I do stay sane. Sane is always a relative term, but uh, <laughs> um, I... I, I don't, I, again, I don't really think of the short-term value changes and I kind of, I, I expect it's going to increase in value. So in a lot of ways, uh, it's more just confirmation of my expectations and hopefully one day I'll be able to live much nicer lifestyle than I do now, perhaps without even working. I'm hoping I can offer my children a much better future than I would have been able to without Bitcoin. So for me, it's more just about, okay, I've got savings and they are increasing in value and that's a good thing. I don't, I don't plan on all of a sudden going crazy and buying a local castle or something. <laughs> <laughs> and does your wife also use Bitcoin? Like, I guess she also has a wallet on her phone and buys things with Bitcoin. She does. Yes. She's not as sort of, I guess you'd say deeply into it as I am. She understood the value proposition when I said, I think we should go 100% Bitcoin. She doesn't really understand the technical side of it. And when it comes to things like macroeconomic theory and so on, she kind of just trusts me, which I think is a wonderful thing. There should, there should be trust in a relationship. So yeah, it's more or less, she, look, she just kind of lets me do my thing. And when it comes to money. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And do your children get like weird questions from other children about that thing? They do. And my daughter especially loves explaining it. So <laughs> last year she was in third grade and she did a presentation to her class about Bitcoin. And after that, her teacher was a Bitcoiner. So she did a good... <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's a great story. Thank you for that. And and your family and your friends, I guess they also know that you only use Bitcoin. Yes, do um, they do. And that's something I actually am always a little bit careful of because I'm, I do have to think about the idea of potentially fake friends, people who you know think, oh, okay, Dale has a lot of Bitcoin. Maybe he's going to you know be really, really rich one day. So I'll be his friend just for that. But in general, I kind of... I, my friends are the people who aren't that interested or impressed by wealth and money, and they care more about things like making the world a better place. So to me, it's just, I will spend my time with people who are like-minded, want to make the world a better place. And usually I would say I can kind of weed out the real friends from the fake friends with that kind of uh, approach. Mm -hmm. When I contacted you, you mentioned that some shops do not accept Bitcoin and then you use uh, fiat currency. How does that yep. work? Which kind, how do you do that? Yeah. So I, yeah, I always do have to be careful to say I, I don't hold fiat currency. I don't say I don't use fiat currency because realistically that's just not possible anymore. I don't know, or not possible yet. I don't know, for example, anywhere where I can pay for um, petrol for my car. Um, in Bitcoin. I haven't found a single petrol station who will accept Bitcoin and I do need to put petrol in my car. So mm -hmm. what I do is I use a credit card um, that is issued in Australia where I used to live a long time ago now actually. I've been in Germany for 13 years but uh, before that I lived in Australia for about six years 
And when I lived in Australia, I got this normal Australian credit card. Nothing special. It's just a credit card. But the advantage of being an Australian issued card is I can pay the bill using the service Living Room of Satoshi, which is an Australian website that lets you pay any Australian bill, including credit cards, using Bitcoin. So it's not my preferred payment method. There's extra costs involved and it's a bit um, uncomfortable to use. But if I can't pay in Bitcoin directly, such as for petrol, I will pay using my credit card then just go to the Living Room of Satoshi website and pay off the credit card using Bitcoin immediately. Oh, understand. Uh-huh. I think there is even such a tool in Germany, but I, I don't can't remember the name now, where you can pay your bills uh, with Bitcoin, your invoices. Yeah, um, Some of them, but it's actually, it's even less. I also don't remember the name of the tool because I, I looked at it once and then kind of gave up. It was much less um, elegant. The Australian system, um, there's, there's something called BPay, and basically every biller, has a particular code and then your bill code as well. So to pay off my credit card, I'll give the credit card um, ID and then the credit card number and just the amount I want to pay. That's all that's required, um, making it really trivial to use. Uh, I don't need to scan in invoices or you know, trust somebody else particularly. It's just uh, all automated. Interesting. I hope uh, this comes to Europe too that one day. Be nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What are the tools or processes that you would recommend to our listeners that can give them more privacy in their digital lives and maybe also in paying bills? So um, privacy in general is a complicated thing, and I think most people try to do too much. So there are some very basic things like using Tor, using VPNs on your network, so you're know, connecting from somewhere other than where you are or onion routing the Tor system. But aside from simply the basics of install those things and use them, the main thing that I would really advise is to take time to learn the trade-offs of different systems with self-custody of data versus cloud um, data. What does it mean to have things like a Google account and a Facebook account, how that tracking actually works? So a lot of people say things like, I don't want to have a Google account at all. I don't want a Facebook account. They'll track me. Or they'll see everything I'm doing online. I prefer to take the approach to say, I know what those systems are potentially doing. And then while I'm interacting with systems that may be related, for example, um, a browser that isn't in privacy mode, I'll just, sorry, losing my train of foot here. I'll, uh, mm. yeah, um, I'll, I'll use the systems knowing that I am being tracked. A good example of that would be my iPhone. I take photos with my iPhone a lot. They get up to, they get automatically uploaded into Apple's cloud. I'm aware that that is happening. So I will not take photos of things which are potentially something which could be embarrassing or secure or you know pictures of my children in the bath or who knows what it's going to be. Mm. There are things I will not take photos using my iPhone, which I might take photos using other cameras. So those are the kinds of privacy things that I think about in my daily life. I don't think it's worth trying to avoid all of those systems out there because there's just too many of them in the world and it makes life too difficult. Mm -hmm. And do you do something like uh, coin joining your Bitcoin to hide your traces? Uh, for my cold storage, yes. But for things like my hot wallets, I don't. So again, that comes to the same kind of privacy question. Avoiding all kind of tracking is just too much additional extra work. So with things like the hot wallets, I really don't care if somebody knows that that particular coffee purchase I made on that day was somehow related to that purchase at um the flower shop when I bought flowers for my wife. You know, that's to me, I don't mind people linking that information, but anything going into my cold storage, I know that that's something that in the future could potentially be worth a lot of money. And I don't want that to necessarily be easily traced and connected back to me. So coin joins happen before anything goes into cold storage. Are you actually or still scared of losing your Bitcoin? Generally not. I trust the mathematics of Bitcoin to know that the only way I'm going to lose it is my own error. I will potentially make a mistake at some point and lose it. That's one of the reasons I've got those four different wallets. If I mess up something on my Lightning wallet, the most I can lose is the amount that I've got in there, which is not so much. The cold storage wallet I have, I put a huge amount of work into making sure that that is not only secure, but also not going to be lost 
in any reasonable way. So yeah, the more more I'm storing, the more care I took in how to secure it. Mm-hmm. And do you also have a routine how you are checking your seed? How often is there a yeah? Um, do you have like a checklist? Yep. So actually, no, and kind of for good reasons. On the hot wallets, it's not worth it because there's not enough money. And on the cold storage, checking the seed in some way would basically reduce the security. So I do. For example, I would have to put together all of the parts and check, okay, is everything okay? Mm-hmm. But I I do um, routinely check that the parts of the seed are still where they should be and nothing's happened. So, you know, if if part is in a vault somewhere or, a, sorry, a safety deposit box somewhere, I'll check that it's still there, but there's no major technical work involved with that. And um, I also guess that you have a guide for your wife and your children if something happens to you. Yes, yes, I do. So, of course, I can't give all of the details because that would be mm. way what it is. But it part of it involves a trusted third party. You can think in terms of like a lawyer executing a will. That means there is somebody who can't access the value of it, but they could potentially block my family from getting it. The other part of it is something that the, my family knows. So it's a mix of their knowledge and this knowledge from a third party. But I am actually looking into other alternatives that I might be able to set up in the future because that risk from third party is still very, very low, but maybe it's enough that I want to consider something else. Mm-hmm. From your processes, like using Bitcoin every day, did we forget to mention anything what would be interesting for our listeners or have we mentioned any, everything? Um, I think we've mostly mentioned everything. Maybe one thing I'd sort of reiterate perhaps is that using Bitcoin every day really doesn't get influenced as much by things like volatility that people often talk about with using Bitcoin as a currency. They say, oh, if the value goes up, the value goes down, that could be a real problem for using it on a day-to-day basis. That's actually something I really strongly disagree with because to me, volatility only matters over the longer timescales. You know, maybe at some point in the future, I want to sell my Bitcoin for Euro and it's gone down a lot. So, okay, I'm getting less Euro and it's much, much less. But on a day-to-day basis, the volatility only matters between the time that I get the Bitcoin, be it from working or selling some fiat that I got or whatever the case may be, through to the time that I spend it. The volatility between that kind of time frame is usually very low. So, I don't actually see a lot of volatility as being a concern. It's more interesting for watching the value of my savings increase than it is for you know, worrying about the price of my next cup of coffee. What do you think about the fact that early Bitcoiners, people who have come in, in early like you, but also have <laughs> have uh, uh, saved uh, Bitcoin for the long run, and now there is some critique often that Bitcoin is unequally distributed and that it's not fair. What What's your take on that? So I have multiple takes on that. Sort of the first would be that I don't believe the universe is fair, so you know, okay, this is just another unfair thing. But second, more um, to the point, it's not ideal, but it's not catastrophic. Because Bitcoin has a fixed supply, you really can't just earn more of it by doing nothing. You can't sit closer to the money production and generate more money out of doing nothing. So in a pure Bitcoin economy, I'm imagining, you know, perhaps long after I'm dead, who knows, the people who actually generate economic value by goods and services will take the money away from those who are not generating economic value. If I'm sitting there in my mansion, I've got huge amounts of money, and I'm paying my gardener to do gardening, he is taking a definite fraction of my Bitcoin away that I can't not, or I can't generate it out of thin air. I can't somehow keep my money and pay him at the same time because that just doesn't work in a fixed supply economy. So the people who are working will get the money. And I think over a long enough time frame, that will act as an equalizer. So I think it will be fair in the long run, if it's even if it's not fair at the start. And I always think also that maybe some or many of these early Bitcoiners who have loads of Bitcoin or money now, like in fiat currency, that they also reinvested into Bitcoin 
products or projects. At least I, I hope so. <laughs> I do think that's happening a lot as well. And of course, you know, every time somebody who was an early Bitcoiner who had a lot decides, okay, I'm going to cash out into some fiat money, that is Bitcoin, which is now being redistributed. So at some future point where there is only Bitcoin as um, the world currency, the the few people who are left with a lot of it, it won't be anywhere near as many people as um, there is perhaps right now who have a large amount. You're also on Twitter and there are always the loudest voices, uh, sometimes the weirdest voices. <laughs> are you are you afraid that the perception of Bitcoin might be falsely linked to these ideas and statements? Um To an extent, yes, but I also think this is something else that sorts itself out over time. So I make no no secret of the fact that I disagree with a lot of those very loud voices on Twitter, um, the kind of people who perhaps are very right-wing politically. Um, I'm not. I'm quite left-wing politically. So, of course, those kinds of disagreements happen. And there is people who, oh, sorry, there are people who have been turned away from Bitcoin by looking at things like Bitcoin Twitter and saying, these are not people I want to be associated with. So I think perhaps Bitcoin's um, adoption has even been slowed down a little bit by these kinds of people. But I don't think it's something which is going to ultimately cause too many problems or stop the adoption of Bitcoin. It just slows it to an extent. Main reason for that is Bitcoin's value as sound money is more convincing in the long term than simply association with people who might have some really dumb ideas. Mm. And I think it's not only the sound money, it's also the uncensorability and the possibility to use it worldwide. Yeah. 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 Which to, me, to me, honestly, are elements of sound money. So yes. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Okay. So you're living in Germany now for 13 years. How do you see the Bitcoin adoption in Germany compared to other countries you have lived in? Um, It's, it's really quite different. So I've been in Germany the entire time that Bitcoin has existed. So I can't compare mm. it to Bitcoin living in other countries, but I've traveled a lot and I've seen Bitcoin adoption in other places. Um, to me, Bitcoin in Germany is quite a lot behind um, some other countries in some ways, but quite a lot ahead in some other very small and specific ways. So if you go to Australia, for example... There are now so many restaurants and cafes and so on, which you can walk in and just say, I want to pay with Bitcoin. And you can, which is amazing. That's great. Especially in Brisbane, actually, in uh, Queensland. Tokyo, less so, but there are still quite a few places I can get around in Tokyo on Bitcoin only very, very easily. If I go to Berlin, there's really only a couple of places I can go and spend Bitcoin easily, but they do exist. If I go to, I don't know, Frankfurt, basically nothing. So, you know, it really does vary depending on the location, the specific location. But one thing I've noticed in Germany is that Germans um, have always had this very cash-based view of life. There's kind of a mistrust of, you know, paying by card, that kind of thing. And I've actually used that to the advantage of Bitcoin. When I talk to people, especially smaller shops and so on, say, you know, would you like to accept Bitcoin? I'd like to pay with Bitcoin. One of the first things I usually explain to them is that it's more like cash than a card. Mm. There's a lot of skepticism at first when I first say that, but once I actually explain how it works, peer to peer, they get that and it's kind of more intuitive. It is digital cash rather than being more like a bank account or something like that, which is what they don't trust. So in that way, I actually find it sometimes easier to convince Germans than I would um, have in London, for example, where everything is pay by card, pay with your phone. You don't touch cash, haven't in a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting perspective. May I ask you, where, where have you lived in Australia? Which town would you recommend for somebody like me, for instance? Australia is an interesting country. So I actually, I'd say the three major cities on the East Coast all have their advantages and disadvantages. So that's Brisbane, Sydney, and um, Melbourne. Brisbane, for me personally, is way too hot. Um, I grew up in a cold part of southern New Zealand. <laughs> Living in a hot place kind of just kills me after a while. Um, and the other problem with Brisbane, and I hate to say this for any of the Australian listeners, but uh, Brisbane is an extremely racist city, and that's something I could never really get over. <laughs> yeah, too many 
honestly just racist people and that bothers me sydney is really quite nice very beautiful um very green sydney's got a lot of sort of forests and parks and that sort of thing it's really nice in that way what i didn't like about living so i lived in sydney it was when i was in australia and what i didn't like about living in sydney is it has this aspect of being a business city so you know it's a lot of the time especially with sort of younger professionals it's all about who has the nicest clothes who drives the nicest car and mm-hmm. that's just not interesting to me as a lifestyle Melbourne, I think, is a really great city. The only kind of disadvantage with Melbourne is the weather is incredibly volatile. So if people think Bitcoin's value is volatile, you should see Melbourne weather. Four seasons in a day, easily. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks for that, because whenever it's possible to travel again, I hope that I can, uh, because I like summer more than winter here in Austria, Mm -hmm. and I would like to spend my Austrian winter in Australian summer. That seems reasonable. <laughs> yep, yep. Mm, mm. Last time I was in Vienna, it was 44 degrees. That was yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. Yeah, in the last years, it's getting hotter and yeah. hotter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Dale, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time as well. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I think so too. I'm so happy that I have a real-life example a person who's living in Europe, living only from Bitcoin. I think this is rather special. And it's also a way to see for others, for listeners, that it's possible, although you you say yourself it's hard and you don't recommend it. But I guess in the coming years, it will be easier and easier. Yeah, I certainly hope and expect so. Yeah. And do you want to tell our listeners where they can follow you? Sure. So I am on both Twitter and Reddit under the name Dale Buen. Other than that, actually, if you were to simply Google Dale Buen, you would find my books on Amazon and potentially other places where I can be found. I'm not somebody who cares about how many followers I have. I'm not a influencer of any kind. I'm just somebody who likes to get his opinion out there. Thank you very much. I'm happy that I found you on the white internet. And yeah, I maybe one day we can meet uh, in person when it's possible again. And I wish you all the best and also for your family. Sounds good to me. Thank you. Have a great evening. That's it for today. If you like my show, please share it with your friends and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now. Thanks to my sponsors who make it possible that I can produce the show. Localbitcoins.com, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2 and Coinfinity with their card wallet. Music. Start with yes. Delicate beats. Idea, content and production. Yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>